0: Bhagwan, Yagyu Tajima no Kami Menonori was a teacher of swordsmanship to the Shogun. One of the personal guards of the Shogun came to Tajima no Kami one day asking to be trained in sword play. As I observe, you seem to be a master of the art yourself, said the teacher. Please tell me to what school you belong before we enter into the relationship of teacher and pupil. The guardsman said, I do not belong to any school. I have never studied the art. It's no use trying to fool me, said the teacher. My judging eye never fails. I am sorry to defy your honor, said the guard, but I really know nothing. If you say so, then it must be true but I am sure that you are a master of something, so tell me about yourself. There is one thing, said the guard. When I was a child, I thought that a samurai should never be afraid of death. So I grappled with the problem, and now the thought of death has ceased to worry me. That's it, exclaimed the teacher. The ultimate secrets of swordsmanship lying being released from the thought of death. You need no technical training. You are already a master. The ocean
1: is not only hidden behind the waves, it is also manifesting in the waves. It is also there on the surface as much as it is in the depth. The depth and the surface are not two separate things, they are two polarities of the same phenomenon. The center comes to the circumference. The center is as much on the circumference as it is at the center. God is not only the unmanifest, it is also the manifest. The God is not only the creator, the God is also the creation. The girl, the God, is as much in his world as he is in himself. Just the other night a new sannyasin asked me, Bhagavan, can you show me the divine form I told him, all the forms are divine. I have not seen a single form which is not divine. The whole existence is divine. Don't divide it into profane and sacred. All the time what else I am doing sowing the divine form. What else you are doing? Sowing the divine form. What else is happening all over existence? The divine is spread everywhere. It is as much in the small as it is in the great, as much in a grass leaf as in a far of a great star. But the mind thinks in dualities. It thinks God is hidden. Then it tries to deny the manifest, and then it tries to seek the unmanifest. Now you are creating an unnecessary conflict for you. God is here now, as much as anywhere else. God is as much in the seeker as in the sought. He is manifesting. That's why I say, the ocean is in the waves, dig deep in the waves, dig deep in the form, and you will find the formless. If you cannot see this, that doesn't mean that God is not manifest, that only means that you are still blind. You have still not got the eyes that can see the obvious. God is the obvious. And this is so on every level of being. Whatsoever you are, you go on broadcasting around you. You cannot hide it. Nothing absolutely nothing can be hidden. There is a Zen saying, nothing whatsoever is hidden from of old. All is clear as delight, but all is not clear as delight for you. That doesn't mean that delight is not there that simply means you are standing with closed eyes. Open your eyes just a little and the darkness starts disappearing. Open your eyes and wherever you are immediately you will be able to see as deep as existence is once your eyes are open, everything becomes transparent. You see me, you just see the surface, the waves. You hear me, you only hear the words, not the silence hidden behind them. Exactly you only see that which is not worth and you miss all that is of any worth and significance. When I see you, it is not the form, it is not the image that you look in the mirror. When I see you, I see you. And you are broadcasting yourself in your each gesture, in your each movement, the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you keep silence and don't talk, the way you eat, the way you sit, everything is manifesting you. Anybody who is perceptive will be able to see whether you are dark inside or you have kindled the flame. It is as easy as if you pass by a house in the night, dark night, and the house is lighted inside. Is it in any way difficult to know? because from the windows, from the doors, you can see the light coming out. Or if the house is in darkness and there is no light burning inside, then of course you see it, it is obvious. The same is happening in you. Whatsoever you are is being broadcasted every moment your neurosis is broadcasted, your enlightenment also, your meditation is broadcasted, your madness also. You cannot hide it. All efforts to hide yourself are futile. They are stupid, ridiculous. I was reading a book by Edmund Carpenter, He was working on some sociological project, a research project in Borneo. He writes, In small towns in Borneo, professional clerks sit before open windows reading and writing, because people are illiterate, they cannot read and write. So for their letters, documents, or any other thing, they need the help of professional writers and readers. But carpenter was very much surprised, because he says, I noticed one who was plugging his ears with his fingers while he read aloud. He inquired, And he was told this was done at the request of the listener who did not want to share his letter with the reader. So the reader is plugging his ears with his fingers and reading loudly the letters. But this is what is happening in everybody's life. You go on hiding, but everything is being declared continuously, loudly. Everything is being broadcasted. You are a continuous broadcasting station. Even while you are asleep, you are broadcasting. if a Buddha comes to you while you are asleep, he will be able to see who you are. Even in your sleep, you will be making gestures, faces, movements, uttering something, and all those things will indicate something about you. Because the sleep is yours, and it is bound to carry your signature. If one becomes a little alert, one stops hiding. It is futile, it is ridiculous. Then one simply relaxes. Because of hiding, you remain tense, continuously afraid somebody may know about you you never expose yourself. You never live in the nude, I mean spiritually. You never live in the nude, always afraid that fear cripples you, paralyzes you. Once you understand that everything is bound to be declared, it is already being declared, The center is coming to the circumference every moment, and the ocean is waving in the waves, and God is everywhere, spread all over his existence, and you are spread all over your activities. There is no point in hiding. Nothing whatsoever is hidden from of old. Everything is as clear as daylight. Then why bother? one relaxes. The anxiety, the tension, the anguish disappears. Suddenly, you become vulnerable, no more closed. Suddenly you are open. Suddenly you become inviting. And this is the point to be understood. Once you are exposed to others, only then you will be exposed to yourself. If you are hiding from others, whatsoever you are hiding from others, by and by, will be thrown into the basement of your unconscious mind. Others may not know about it, but by and by, you will also forget about it. But whenever you will come in the vision of a perceptive man, everything will be revealed. That is one of the basic reasons why in the East the relationship of a disciple to a master is so much valued. Because the master is just like a ray of light, an X-ray, and the disciple exposes himself. And the more the master penetrates and knows about the disciple, the disciple also by and by becomes aware of his own hidden treasures. Trying to hide himself from others, he has become such an expert in hiding that he hides from himself also. You don't know much about yourself, just a fragment you know about yourself, just the tip of the iceberg. Your knowledge about yourself is very limited, not only limited, it is almost irrelevant. It is so partial, it is so fragmentary, that unless you put it in the context with your whole being, it carries no meaning, it is almost meaningless. That's why you go on living without knowing yourself, and how one can live without knowing oneself. And you go on projecting things on others which have nothing to do with others. They may be just hidden forces inside you, but you don't know that they are hidden inside you. You project them on others somebody looks like an egoist to you. You may be the egoist, and you project. Somebody looks very angry, and the anger may be inside you, and the other is just like a screen, and you project. Unless you know yourself exactly, you will not be able to know what is real and what is projection. You will not be able to know about others also. Self-knowledge becomes the door of all knowledge. It is the very base. Without that foundation, all knowledge it's just knowledge in appearance. Deep down it is ignorance. I have heard one anecdote. Mr. Jones, deeply troubled, was consulting a psychiatrist. My husband, she said, is convinced he is a chicken. He goes around squacking constantly and sleeps on a large bar of wood he has fixed up as a perch. I see, said the psychiatrist thoughtfully, and how long has your husband been suffering from this fixation? For nearly two years now. The psychiatrist frowned slightly and said, but why have you waited till now to seek help? Mr. Jones blessed and said, ah, well, It was so nice having a steady supply of eggs. Now, this woman is neurotic. She thinks her husband is neurotic. Whenever you think something about somebody else, watch. Don't be in a hurry. First look within. The cause may be inside you, but you don't know yourself, so you go on confusing your own projections with outer realities. It is impossible to know anything real unless you have known yourself. And the only way to know oneself is to live a life of vulnerability, openness. Don't live in a closed cell. Don't hide yourself behind your mind. Come out. Once you come out, you will be combined by aware of millions of things in you. You are not a one-room apartment. You have many rooms. You are a palace but you have become accustomed to live in the porch. You have forgotten the palace completely. Many treasures are hidden behind you, in you. And those treasures constantly go knocking, inviting, but you are almost deaf. This blindness, this deafness, this insensitivity has to be broken. Nobody else can do it. If somebody else tries, you will feel offended. You will feel a trespass. It happens every day. If I try to help you, You feel you have been trespassed. If I try to say something true about you, you feel offended. You feel hurt. Your pride is hurt. You feel humiliated. You want to listen lies about you from me. You want to listen something which helps your already fixed image. You have a very gold image about you, which is false. It has to be settled to pieces, because once it is settled, the reality will arise. If it is not settled, you will go on clinging with it. You think you are religious, you think you are a great seeker. You may not be religious at all, you may be simply afraid of life. In your temples, churches, cowards are hiding there, afraid of life. But to accept that one is afraid of life is very humiliating. So they say they are not afraid of life, they have renounced. Life is not worth. Life is only for mediocre minds. They have renounced everything for God. They are searching God. But watch, they are trembling on their knees, praying. But their prayer is not of love. Their prayer is not of celebration. Their prayer is not a festivity. Their prayer is out of fear, and fear corrupts everything. Nobody can approach God through fear. You have to approach truth through fearlessness. But if you are hiding your fear behind religiousness, then it will be very difficult to settle it. You are greedy miser, but you go on saying that you live a very simple life. Now if you are hiding behind the rationalization of simplicity, then it is very difficult to see that you are a miser. And a miser misses tremendously. Because life is for those who share. Life is for those who love. Life is for those who are not too much clinging to things, because then they become available to persons. To cling to a thing is to cling to something which is below you. And if you go on clinging to things which are below you, how can you soar high? It is as if you are clinging to rocks and trying to fly in the sky or you are carrying rocks on the head and trying to climb the Everest. You have to throw them. You have to throw those rocks. You will have to unburden yourself. Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to reach at the top of Everest, says in his autobiography that as we started reaching closer and closer, I had to leave more and more things. At the last moment, I had to leave almost everything, because everything became such a burden. Higher you reach, more unburdenedness is needed. So a miser cannot soar high. A miser cannot soar in love or in prayer or in God. He remains clinging to the earth. He almost remains rooted in the earth. Trees cannot fly. If you want to fly, you need to be uprooted. You need to be like a white cloud, with no roots anywhere, a wanderer. But you can hide your miserable self, and you can hide your diseases behind good, beautiful terms and words. You can be very articulate, and you can be very rationalizing all these have to be broken. And if you go on hiding, then not only you hide your diseases, you hide your treasures also. This hiding becomes a fixation. It becomes a habit, an obsession. But I tell you, before a perceptive man before a master who has known himself, you will be completely x-rayed. You cannot hide from somebody who has eyes. You can hide from yourself, you can hide from the world, but you cannot hide from somebody who has come to know what clarity is perception is. For such a man, you are absolutely on the surface. I have heard an American couple stroll along the banks of the Seine under the shadows of Notre Dame. He was lost in silence. She said finally, What are you thinking about, darling? I was thinking, dear, that if anything happened to either of us, I would like to spend the rest of my life in Paris. He may not be aware what he is saying. He may have uttered this in absolute unawareness. Let me repeat it. He says, I was thinking, dear, That if anything happened to either of us, I would like to spend the rest of my life in Paris. He wants the wife to die. But he is not saying that clearly, though he has said it. We continuously broadcast. In many ways, just a few days before, President Ford had given a party in honor to the Egyptian ambassador to the states. But then When he was giving the toast, he forgot completely. Something from the unconscious bubbled up, a slip of tongue, we say, but it is not just a slip of tongue. He raised the toast and said, in honor of the great nation of Israel, to Egyptians. (laughs) Then of course he tried to mend it, to patch it, but it is too late. (laughs) Deep down he wants Israel to win over Egyptians from the unconscious. It bubbled up, surfaced. It happened in a party. A man was leaving, but he was very diffident. He murmured to the hostess, The meal was delicious, what there was of it. Noting the hurt expression on his hostess face, the guest blessed and hastened to say, Aha! And there was plenty of food, such as it was. (laughs) These are unconscious assertions. They come out of you when you are not on guard. Ordinarily you are on guard. That's why people are so tense, continuously on guard, guarding yourself. But there are moments when the tension is too much and one relaxes. One has to relax, one cannot guard twenty-four hours. In those moments things surface. You are truer when you have drunk a little too much and things start surfacing from your unconscious. under the influence of alcohol, you are truer than you ordinary are, because the alcohol relaxes the guard. Then you start saying things you always wanted to say, and you are not worried about anything. and you are not trying to leave any impression. You are simply being true. Drunkards are beautiful persons, truer, more authentic. It is ironical that only drunkards are authentic, the more you are clever and cunning, the more inauthentic you become. Don't hide behind screens. Come out in the sunshine. And don't be afraid that your image will be shattered. The image that you are afraid of being settled, is not worth keeping. It is better to settle it on your own. Take a hammer and settle it. That's what being a sannyasin means, that you take a hammer in your hands and you settle the old image, and you start a new life from A, B, C. From the very beginning again, as if you are born again. It is a rebirth. Then, by and by, if you relax and you are not too much worried about the image in the eyes of others your own authentic face, original face, comes into being. The face that you had before you were born, and the face that you will again have when you are dead, the original face, not the cultivated mask. With that original face you will see everywhere God. Because with the original face, you can meet with the original reality. With a mask, you will meet only other masks. With the mask, there can be never any dialogue with reality. With the mask, you remain in the relationship of I and it, the reality remains it. When the mask is removed and you have come back home, a tremendous transformation happens. The relationship with reality is no more of I-it, it It is of I-thou. That Thou is God. The reality takes a personality. You become alive here, reality becomes alive there. It has always been alive, just you were dead. As if, if you have taken some time, chloroform, when you come back and the influence of the chloroform disappears by and by, How do you feel? It is a beautiful experience. If you have never been to the surgeon's table, just for the experience you can go. (laughs) For a few moments, completely in oblivion, and then consciousness arises. Suddenly everything becomes alive again, fresh, you are coming out of the womb. Exactly the same happens when you decide to live an authentic life. Then for the first time you understand that now you are born. Just before it you were thinking and dreaming that you are alive, but you were not. A great mathematician, Herr Gas, was keeping vigil while his wife lay ill upstairs, and as time passed, he found himself beginning to ponder a deep problem in mathematics. People have grooves in their mind. They move in the same groups again and again. A mathematician has a certain track. The wife is going to die, the doctors have said that this is going to be the last night. Keeping vigil, but the mind started moving in its old pattern, of course he started thinking about a mathematical problem. Just see, the wife will no more be there again the last night. But the mind is creating a screen of mathematics. He has completely forgotten about the wife, he has moved, he has gone far away in the journey As time passed, he found himself beginning to ponder a deep problem in mathematics. He drew pen and paper to himself and began to draw diagrams. A servant approached and said differentially, Herr Gas, your wife is dying. And Gas never looking up, said, Yes, yes, but tell her to wait till I am through. even the great minds are as much unconscious as you are. As far as consciousness is concerned, great, small and mediocre all sail in the same boat. Even the greatest mind lives under chloroform. come out of it, make yourself more alert, bring yourself together. Let one thing become a centering, constantly centering within you, and that is alertness, awareness. Do whatsoever you do, but do, Consciously, by and by, consciousness accumulates and it becomes a reservoir of energy. Now, the Zen story. Yogiyo Tajima Nokami Munenori was a teacher of Swart's to the Shogun, to the king. In Zen, and only in Zen, something of great import has happened, and that is they don't make any distinction between ordinary life and religious life, rather they have bridged them both. And they have used ordinary skills as upai, as methods for meditation. That is something of tremendous import. Because if you don't use ordinary life as a method to meditation, your meditation is bad bound to become something of an escape. In India it has happened, and India has suffered badly. The misery that you see all around, the poverty, the horrible ugliness of it, is because India always thought a religious life separate from the ordinary life So people who became interested in God they renounced the world. People who became interested in God they closed their eyes, sat in the caves in the Himalayas, and they tried to forget that the world exists. They tried to create the idea that the world is simply an illusion, illusory, a maya, a dream. Of course, life suffered much because of it. Because all the greatest minds of this country became escapists. And the country was left to the mediocres. No science could evolve. No technology could evolve. In Japan Zen has done something very beautiful. That's why Japan is the only country where East and West are meeting. The Eastern meditation and the Western reason are in a deep synthesis in Japan. Zen has created the whole situation there. Now in India you cannot conceive that sourcemanship can become an upai, a method for meditation. But in Japan they have done it. And I I see that they have brought something very new to religious consciousness anything can be converted into a meditation because the whole thing is of awareness and of course in Swar's Manship, more awareness is needed than anywhere else because life will be at stake every moment when fighting with souls, you have to be constantly alert. A single moment's unconsciousness and you will be gone. In fact, a real swordsman does not function out of his mind, cannot function out of his mind, because mind takes time. It thinks, calculates, And when you are fighting with his sword, where is time? There is no time. A single fragment of a second. If you miss it in thinking, the other will not miss the opportunity. The other's sword will penetrate into your heart or will cut your head. So thinking is not possible. One has to function out of no mind. One has to simply function. The danger is so much that you cannot afford the luxury of thinking. Thinking needs an easy chair. You just relax in the easy chair, and you go on in mind trips. But when you are fighting and life is at stake and the swords are shining in the sun, and any moment a slight unawareness and the other will not lose the opportunity, and you will be gone forever. There is no space for thought to appear. One has to function out of no thought. That's what meditation is all about. If you can function out of no thought, if you can function out of no mind, if you can function as a total organic unity, not out of the head, if you can function out of your guts, it happens to you also. Suddenly you are walking in the night and a snake crosses the path. What do you do? Do you sit there and think about it? suddenly you jump out of the way. In fact, you don't decide the jump. You don't think like a logical syllogism that here is a snake, and wherever there is a snake there is danger. Therefore, ergo, I should jump. That is not the way. You simply jump. The action is total. The action is not corrupted by thinking. It comes out of your very core of being, not out of the head. Of course, when you have jumped out of the danger, you can sit under a tree and think about the whole thing. That's another matter. Then you can afford the luxury the house catches fire what you do do you think to go out or not to go to be or not to be you consult scripture that it is is it right to do it you sit silently and you meditate upon it you simply get out of the house. And you will not be worried about manners and etiquette, you will jump out of the window. Just two nights before, a girl entered three o'clock in the night and started screaming in the garden, Asis jumped out of his bed, ran, and only then he realized that he is naked. (laughs) Then he came back. That was the act out of no mind. Without any thought. He simply jumped out of the bed. Thought came later on, thought followed, lagged behind. He was ahead of thought. Of course it caught hold of him, so he missed one opportunity that would have become a satori. But he came back and put on Put on his gown, missed. <laughs> Swarsmanship became one of the upayas, one of the basic methodology. Because the very thing is such, so dangerous that it doesn't allow thinking. It can lead you towards a different type of functioning, a different type of reality, a separate reality. You know only one way how to function, to think first, and then to function. In Swarismanship, a different type of existence becomes open to you. You function first and then you think. Thinking is no more primary. And this is the beauty, that when thinking is not primary, you cannot err. You have heard the proverb, it is a human to err. Yes, it is true. It is human to err, because the human mind is prone to err. But when you function out of no mind, you are no more human. You are divine. And then there is no possibility to err, because the total never errs. only the part. Only the part goes astray. God never errs, cannot err, he is the whole. When you start functioning of out of nothingness, with no syllogism, with no thinking, with no conclusions, of course your conclusions are limited. They depend on your experience. You can err. But when you put aside all your conclusions, you are putting aside all limitations also. Then you function out of your unlimited being. It never is. It is said that sometimes it has happened in Japan that two Zen people will fight and both have attained to Satori through swordsmanship. Then they cannot be defeated. Nobody can be victorious. They both never is Before the other attacks, the first has already made preparations to receive it. Before the other sword moves to cut your head, you are already prepared to cut his attack. And the same happens with your attack. Two Zen people who have attended to Satori can go on fighting for years but it is impossible. They cannot err, and nobody can be defeated, and nobody can be victorious. Munemori was a teacher of swordsmanship to the king. One of the personal guards of the king came to Tajima Nokami one day asking to be tra- trained in swordsplay. As I observe, you seem to be a master of the art yourself, said the teacher. As I observe. In India, when Buddha was alive, there was one of his contemporaries, Mahavira. Between the disciples of the two there has been a great discussion since then. The discussion is about an enlightened person's awareness. Mahavira's followers, Janas, say that whenever a person has become enlightened he is always knowing everything of the past, of the present, of the future. He has become omniscient. He knows everything. He has become a mirror to the whole of the reality. Buddha's followers say that that is not so. He becomes capable of knowing anything if he observes. If he tries to focus on anything, he will be able to know everything about it. But it is not like the followers of Mahavira say that whether he focuses or not, he knows. To me also, the Buddhist standpoint seems to be better and more scientific. Otherwise, a man like Buddha will almost go mad. Just think of it, knowing everything of the past and the present and the future. No, that doesn't seem to be right. Buddhist attitude seems to be more right he has become capable of knowing. Now whenever he wants to use the capacity, he focuses, he throws his ray of light, he puts something in the pillow of his meditation, and that thing becomes revealed to him. Otherwise it will be impossible for him to rest, even in the night he will be continuously knowing knowing the past and the present and the future, and not only his of the whole world. Just think of the seer impossibility of it. No, that's not possible. As I observe, said the Master, hmm, the disciple has come and he asks to be trained in Swar's play. The Master said, as I observe, he focuses his ray of light, his torch, towards this disciple. Now this disciple is under his meditation. He goes through and through, the disciple becomes transparent. That's what happens when you come to a master. Simply his light penetrates you to your very core. You seem to be a master of the art yourself, said the master. He could not find anything which was wrong in this man. Everything was as it should be, in tune, humming. This man was a beautiful song. He was already achieved. Please tell me to what school you belong before we enter into the relationship of teacher and pupil. That is the the highest relationship in the world, greater than a love relationship, greater than any relationship, because the surrender has to be total even in a love relationship, the surrender is not total. The surrender is partial. The divorce is possible, but in fact if once you have become a disciple of a master, if really you have become a disciple, if you have been accepted If you have surrendered, there is no possibility of divorce, there is no going back, it is a point of no return. Then the two persons are no more there, they exist like one. Two aspects of one, but not two. So the Master says, before we enter into the relationship of teacher and pupil, I would like to know where you learned this art. How you have become so tuned. You are already a master. The guardsman said, I do not belong to any school. I have never studied the art. It is no use trying to fool me, said the teacher. My judging eye never fails. Now listen to this paradox. The judging arises only when you have left all judgment. In meditation you have to leave all judging. What is good, what is bad, you have to drop down all that division. You simply look. You look without any judgment, without any condemnation, without any appreciation. You don't evaluate, you simply look. The look becomes pure. When this look has happened to you and has become an integrated thing in your being, you attain to such a capacity which never fails. Once you have become one inside and gone, me, gone beyond morality, dualism, good and bad, sin and virtue, life and death, beautiful and ugly, once you have gone beyond the dualisms of mind, you attain to the judging eye. This is the paradox. All judgment has to be left. Then you attain to the judging eye. Then it never fails. You simply know it is so. There is no alternative to it. It is not a choice on your part. It is not a decision. It is a simple revelation that it is so. It is no use trying to fool me, said the Master. My judging eye never fails. I am sorry to defy your honor, said the guard. but I really know nothing. If you say so, then it must be true. But I am sure that you are the master of something. Now this point has to be understood. It makes no difference of what you are a master of. The taste of mastery is the same, the flavor is the same. You can become a master of archery, or you can become a master of swordsmanship, or you can become a master just of the ordinary tea ceremony. It makes no difference the real thing that you have become a master. The art has gone so deep that you are not carrying it anymore. The art has gone so deep that now there is no need to think about it. It has become simply your nature, but I am sure that you are the master of something. Maybe you are not the master of swordsmanship, but you are the master. So tell me about yourself. There is one thing, said the guard. When I was a child I thought that a samurai, a warrior, should never be afraid of death. So I grappled with the problem and now the thought of death has ceased to worry me. But that is what the whole religion is all about. If death no more bothers you, you have become a master, you have tasted something of the deathless, that is, of your innermost nature you have known something of the eternal. To know the deathless is the whole business of life. The Life is an opportunity to know the deathless. Now the thought of death has ceased to worry me, said the guard. That's it, exclaimed the master. The ultimate secrets of swordsmanship lie in being released from the thought of death. You need no technical training. You are already a master. Because when you are fighting with a sword, if you are afraid of death, thinking will continue. Now let me tell you one basic truth. Thinking is out of fear. All thinking is out of fear. The more you become afraid, the more you think. Whenever there is not fear, thinking stops. If you have fallen in love with someone, there are moments when thinking stops with your beloved or your lover just sitting by the lake, doing nothing, holding hands, looking at the moon other the stars, or just gazing into the darkness of the night. Sometimes thoughts stop, because there is no fear. Love dispels fear, just as light dispels darkness. Even for a moment, if you have been in love with someone, fear disappears, and thinking stops. With fear, thinking continues. The more you are afraid, the more you have to think, because by thinking you will create security, by thinking you will create a citadel around you, by thinking you will manage I try to manage how to fight. A swordsman, if he is afraid of death, cannot be a real swordsman, because the fear will make him tremble. A slight trembling inside, a slight thinking inside, and he will not be able to act out of no mind. There is a story. A man in China became the greatest archer. He asked the king to declare me as the greatest archer of the country. The king was just going to decide and declare him. When an old servant of the king said, Wait, sir. I know a man who lives in the forest, who never comes to the town, and he is a greater archer. So let this young man go to him and learn from him at least three years. And he does not know what he is demanding. He is like a camel who has not come yet across a mountain, Archers don't live in the capitals. The real archers are in the mountains. I know one, and I know certainly that this man is nothing. Of course the man was sent. He went. He could not believe that there can be a greater archer than him. But he found the old man, and of course he was three years he learned from him. And then one day, when he had learned everything, the thought arose in him that if I kill this old man, then I will be the greatest archer now. The old man had gone to cut wood, and he was coming, carrying wood on his head, and this young man, hiding behind a tree, wanted to kill him he sought an arrow. The old man, just with a small piece of wood, he threw the small piece of wood. It struck the arrow. The arrow turned back, wounded the young man very deeply, his own arrow. And the old man came, took out the arrow, and he said, I knew this. Someday or other you are going, you were going to do this. That's why I have not taught you this secret. Only one secret I had kept for myself. But no need to kill me. I am not a competitor, but one thing I must tell, my master is still alive, (laughs) and I am nothing before him. You will have to go deeper in the mountains. He is a man of 120 years, very old, but till he is alive nobody can pretend Nobody should even think of declaring you must be with him at least thirty years. And he is very old. Go fast, find the old man. The young man traveled, now very desperate. It seems impossible to become the greatest archer in the country. he found the old man. He was so ancient, 120 years old, completely bent, he could not stand upright. But the young man was surprised, there was no bow, no arrows with him. And he asked, Are you the old man who is the greatest archer? The old man said, Yes. But where are your bow and arrows, the old man said, those are playthings. Real archers don't need them. (laughs) Once you have learned the art, they are just devices to learn. Once you have learned, you throw them. The great musician will throw his instrument, because he has learned what music is. Now, carrying the instrument is foolish, childish. The old man said, But if you are really interested in Bhikkhu and Archer, then come with me. He took him to a precipice. A rock was there, overlooking a very deep valley. And the old man went ahead of the young man, and he was standing just at the very edge, a slight trembling, and he will topple down into the valley. And he called the young man to come close to him. He started perspiring. It was so dangerous to be there. He started trembling, Just before two feet he said, I cannot come that close. The old man started laughing, and he said, If you tremble so much with fear, how can you become an archer? Fear must disappear totally, with no trace behind. The young man said, But how it can be? Because I am afraid of death. Death. The old man said, Drop the idea of death. Find someone who can teach you what deathless life is, and you will become the greatest archer, never before. Fear creates trembling. Fear creates thinking. Thinking is a sort of inner trembling. When one becomes unwavering, the flame of consciousness remains there, undistracted, untrembling. That's it, exclaimed the teacher. The ultimate secrets of swordsmanship lie in being released from the thought of death you need no technical training, you are already a master. But he was not aware of his own mastery. He may have been hiding many other things. Because of that he has been hiding his treasures also. Once exposed to a master, he became alert. And the master said, there is no need for any techniques, you are already a master. As I see in you, everybody is carrying the deathless within him. You may know it, you may not know it, that is not the point, but you are carrying it within you. It is already there, It is already the case. Just a slight understanding of it, and your life can be transformed. And then there is no need for any techniques. Religion is not technology. Everybody is born with a secret treasure, but goes on living as if one is born a beggar. Everybody is born an emperor and goes on living like a beggar. Realize it, and the realization will come to you only if you by and by drop your fears. So whenever fear comes to you, don't uh, Suppress it, don't repress it, don't avoid it, don't get occupied in something so you can forget about it. No. When fear comes, watch it, be face to face with it, encounter it, look deep into it, gaze into the valley of fear. Of course, you will perspire and you will tremble, and it will be like a death, and you will have to live it many times. But by and by the more your eyes will become clear, the more your awareness will become alert, the more your focus will be there on fear fear disappears like a mist. Once fear disappears, even for a moment sometimes, suddenly you are deathless. There is no death. Death is the greatest illusion there is, the greatest myth, the lie. Even for a single moment, if you can see that you are deathless, then no meditation is needed. Then live that experience, then act out of that experience, and the doors of eternal life are open for you. Much is being missed because of fear, and we are too much attached to the body, And we go on creating more and more fear because of that attachment. Body is going to die. The body is part of death. The body is death. But you are beyond the body. You are not the body. You are the bodiless. Remember it. Realize it. Awaken yourself to this truth that you are beyond the body. You are the witness, the seer. Then death disappears, fear disappears, and there arises the tremendously glorious life, what Jesus calls life abundant, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is within you,
0: Enough for today.